gathered here today uh i did pass along my cold to emily yeah i'm so gonna be coughing a this bit. time she's sick and i'm not um doesn't that feel know. nice do you feel good about that <laughs> do you f- are you happy and the wheel turns are you proud of yourself no 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 i feel bad about that Aww. uh but but that's that's the situation we find ourselves in you know we're also going to do a late review of the film hereditary which we yeah. saw a couple weeks ago now. i i actually don't feel bad about doing this one kind of late and i will tell you why tell me why because i know a number of people who are still really interested in seeing this movie and and As maybe are seeing it possibly within the coming week like yeah. like now that it's the fourth of july they're like oh i got time i'm gonna go to the movies i don't know what they were doing with all their time before this because honestly like this is this is a must-see movie this is well they can uh they can listen to our podcast just, and have it all spoiled for well them. no this is the thing is like i actually figured okay well so if most people take a couple weeks to go see a movie that's really great and and they don't want it spoiled like this is good because we'll have this podcast ready after most people have seen it that's right? true. That's true. Because we are I a spoilerific our... podcast. Oh my god! I don't feel bad about it. Do you? Absolutely. I not. don't. I don't think you can break it. I mean, make an omelet without breaking some eggs. I don't think, I think you can really review things no, without actually talking exactly. about the content of the thing you're reviewing. I think that the whole anti-spoiler culture that is out—it's so like, come on, grow some balls, people. If you don't see the wanna, movie yeah. and then listen to the podcast, or else just listen to the podcast and plan on never seeing the movie, or or just deal with it. I think reviews are only useful. Number one, if you've seen the movie, they're most useful if you've seen the movie or a thing that being reviewed, or if you're on the fence about whether or not you want to. So, I mean, if you don't want a spoiler about Hereditary, like, just stop this right now, because we're going to spoil the crap out we'll of spoil it. Spoil the crap out of it. And and we need to. And and after you see it, you're going to know why. And especially this is important, because Hereditary has a pretty uh, misleading press campaign in certain Really? Parts. What is it? Like, pretending to be a, well, a rom-com or something? Well, I think it's pretending to be the... Uh, I think that it's pretending to be really more about the the uh, the little girl in it, basically. Oh, whose name is Charlie, name the is character Charlie. Charlie, and she um, goes, yeah, in the movie a lot. Um, and she, I'm gonna say it right now, she dies relatively oh, soon in the Jesus, movie. You just spoiled the shit out of that. Played by Millie Shapiro is the girl who plays yeah. Charlie. Um, but anyways, so so that's like that's not in the press campaign. So that's where no, I think it does are. actually make it seem. I will say, like when I saw the preview, yeah, I figured she'd be around for the whole movie. Yeah, not and the case. Maybe at all. like twenty minutes in, you're it like, makes it look like it's oh! going to be like a, the bad seed. Or well, she kinda kind of comes thing. back, and it slightly is, but it is a little bit different. So, anyways. Let let's let me say from the start. Also, we're going to talk about Jurassic Park, the shitty Jurassic Park, a little bit later on too. But first, we're going to talk about Hereditary, and I'm going to say right off the bat, Hereditary is the best movie of the year so far. I mean, we're halfway through the year. This is the best movie of I the year. I don't like to just give one movie that award. I, I I best movie of the year. I I would say that this is so far like one of my top favorite movies. Like I would go see is, this again in the theater. Is there something you think is a better movie? I really liked Thoroughbreds. Thoroughbreds is really good. That was a gripping movie. Well, we shall see. Anyhow, (laughs) (laughs) 
Nick thinks that this is a uh, near, not only is near it, perfect movie. Exactly. It's not only the best movie of the year. This is, I would call, a near perfect film. Um, what does I it have... take to get that status in Nick's book? Okay, so so it's like watching something that's like, you know, a true symphony. You know what I mean? Like where wow. where it just unfolds in a way and you get the feeling that the person who made it, person or people who made it, are in charge of every aspect of it and are showing you exactly what they want and it all works uh, to, to, to one great effect, basically. There are very few movies I would call perfect out there. The biggest example I can come up with, actually is a film called Election by Alexander Payne from 1998 that I remember uh, I went and saw three or four times in the movie theater. You know, I would probably see Hereditary three or four times in the theater. Election, every single scene works. Every single scene adds to the film, and I think it's, I think it's as a piece of work, it's, it's a perfect movie. And Alexander Payne has never made anything that good before or since. I don't know if you could ever get there. Well, perfection doesn't come around every, it doesn't come around every, every time day. for everyone. Um, Rushmore, I think, is a near-perfect f- film by Wes Anderson. I think that movie, like, That's every a great film. single shot and scene. Is that an election? Are they from, like, the same year? They're from, like, the same year? year. It was a great year. Whoa. Great year for movies. So if you want to be a filmmaker, like, a great filmmaker, yeah. just get in a time machine, go back to, like, the late 90s, Yeah, get cracking. I would say The Shining, in its own way, is a near-perfect film. The Shining is a perfect film. I'm not saying near perfect. <laughs> I'm saying The Shining is a perfect film. You know, it's maybe the perfect film. I, I was know. gonna talk. I was actually we were talking earlier, and I was gonna say the thing too, but I, I'm I'm taking that back now in my mind because actually, the parts at the end uh, where Rob Bottin had collapsed and they sub in somebody else's like bad claymation effects a little yeah. bit, that that loses it. It it is Aww. it almost gets there. So we need a time machine. We need a time machine for that too. We need to yeah. like. Get Robotine to like go back in time and not collapse and, and take over for himself. Take over for himself. Oh, that'd be trippy. <laughs> but problem solved. So, anyways, but but Hereditary is a near perfect film. Um, let's just say really quick what this movie's about. This movie stars Tony Collette um, as a a woman whose name is Annie. Annie, and she is the the mother of a family. She's got a daughter named Charlie and a son named peter she's yeah. married to a psychologist named uh steve steve, he's, great, a steve. he's a steve played by the great Ga- gabriel byrne who i really love in miller's crossing and some other i things. love him too but you know what we discovered in this movie he can't do an american accent to save his life i don't know if to. he was asked i don't to. think he was trying to but he's like tony collette's british though isn't she and she does a great she american does a perfect accent. american yeah, accent yeah. i think um, so maybe at, Gabriel Byrne just he's, at the start of they're the they're like film, no don't even bother uh, Annie's uh, uh, mother has died and she sort of has a strained relationship with her mother and uh, things happen from there mm-hmm. basically uh, the, the film turns out that Annie's mother was a witch and yeah. uh, and Annie was try- or Annie's mother was trying to sort of uh, possess one of Annie's children especially like she her she daughter really Charlie wanted, she really wanted Peter, but she settled for Charlie. Well, I think it was kind of Annie explains a little bit to Charlie about how like her mother was really kind of domineering and wanted to sort of have a really strong hand in raising Peter. Yeah. Um, which I kind of didn't air quote, so you can't see that. But when I say raising you, Peter, you raised your I voice mean, in it, so I think yeah. Oh, I did, there. and I also cocked an eyebrow, but yeah. you can't you see, can see that, that over a podcast. But anyhow, um. 
the the purpose of Annie's mother wanting to raise Annie's son and then you know it, it, settling for raising her daughter Charlie is that she wanted to um uh, basically yeah like invite um a demon spirit into the body of this offspring mm-hmm. and have it be the um sort of the central uh worshipped figure for her like local coven i think yeah something like you know and that's it's, all silly when you say it out loud but the yeah. thing about i mean the thing about it is that's part of the uh, admission here because this is a this is a horror movie but what this film really does at heart is combined sort of a, a Douglas Sirk style melodrama with really heightened emotions. Extremely And heightened. then slowly edge it into an outright horror film. Yeah. Um, and it does so extraordinarily successfully. Yes. I mean, everything about that that approach works. And, and the director, who's a first-timer, uh, his name is, what is his name? Ari Aster. This is his first uh, feature-length film. He's made some shorts before that I have not seen. He he is. This guy clearly knows what fantastic. he's doing. This guy clearly has just been waiting his entire life that to guy, do this fantastic thing. That guy has such a strong hand on on the visual angles of everything going on here. I mean, every every part of this production is great. All the acting is great. Tony Collette. Well, it's like, dude, you you start by saying, "Oh, I want to hire Tony Collette," who is like known as being. Just a phenomenally, you know, just what I what what, what can I say? She's a diverse actress. She's yeah. got like a serious bag of tricks to draw from. Yeah, and she uses all of them in this one. I think she does such a good like if if horror movie performances were ever nominated for an Oscar, I think this one would totally deserve <sighs> it. Unfortunately, that it doesn't really happen. Oh. But she like she really owns this role, and I mean the 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 son Peter. Uh, that, yeah. that actor, he the only other thing uh, I've seen him in was the most recent Alex Jumanji. Wolf, yeah, I think the, he's in the Jumanji movie. The, oh, the last one. Oh, he is. Yeah, and he's not very good in that. No, but he's pretty darn great in this. He's he's actually quite fantastic in this. Yeah, they this guy gets some really great performances. I mean, and, and you know, it, it starts with the casting. You hire Gabriel Byrne and Tony Collette. Obviously, you know what you're doing. Although you're... I will say, Gabriel Byrne isn't asked to do much. No, no, but he does it. I mean. It's funny because because his role is pretty strange. So th- this is a movie uh, about a woman who's got some serious mental problems. Oh yeah, well, and, and some she serious also family problems. She also divulges in a like a group therapy session about how like her entire family had some serious like we're all at least we'll say we're all diagnosed with serious psychological disorders. It turns out that the underlying cause was you know was that her Satanism mom was a witch, witches, yeah. witchcraft, but but. If you take it at face value, it's like it's like hearing someone tell you their family history and you being like, "Oh my God, you should it's never like, have children. Yeah, Why did you yeah, ever have children?" Yeah, exactly. Uh, but you know, Gabriel Byrne does an interesting job of playing somebody who would be the husband of somebody like that. Like Just he is somebody sort who's of like this kind of very like uh, stoic guy. He's would you stoic. Say he's stoic? pretty passive. He he allows he allows Tony Collette's character Annie a, a lot of leash to like sort of find her own way and That's he's true. like they're quietly supportive, and he is also the kind of guy who, you know, he tries to just be quietly decent. He's like he's like a worm that gets stepped on over and over again and still kind Aww. of turns. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like he just sort of tries to carry on as best he can as the most horrific things happen around him. Yeah. Um. And I actually so I I do think it's a quieter performance than obviously Tony Collette's doing. But it, I think Gabriel. It's true. Burns, you can't really have two two of the that like that yeah. heightened emotion character happening. Yeah, he does a he does he does a good job with it. But but anyway, back to this film, it's just great. 
It's just great. I'm just going <laughs> to say that. Go see it. Just go great. It uh, is It is tra- traumatizing, though. I mean, it's traumatizing. I felt traumatized when I came out of it. Did you? I did, yeah. Because I think I think what it does so well is that it's, um, it, it does, it does, like, storytelling-wise, like, you know you're going to go see a horror film, mm-hmm. right? You've seen the trailer, and there's this girl who looks kind of creepy, and she cuts a head off a bird, and, like, you know that there's some creepy things going on in this, right? Yeah. But you don't really know anything. And, and you go into the movie and you, what you see unfolding initially, I mean, there's like signs, little, little signs indicating that there's maybe something more supernatural at work. Like, um, Tony Collette, uh, finds some of in her, her mother's possessions after her mother's died, she finds a book on spiritualism with a note to her Mm -hmm. and you see, um, this symbol cropping up over and over again and you kind of hear, um, and see evidence of like potentially like w- kind of weird people that might have been secret friends of Tony Collette's mother, yeah. and um, or I should say Annie's mother. Yeah. Um, but but really, like the 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 story initially takes on the genre of just serious drama, and you get so wrapped up in the emotions of these characters that you feel the emotions that they're feeling. I I think anyways. I mean, I think you'd have to be a pretty hard person to not feel like when Charlie dies, I was in tears. I I was so and of course Tony Collette's losing it and you just I mean, it's yeah. it's so strong an emotional thing that's happening that you are then like emotionally exposed for then later when the story transitions into kind of like this, it goes into like a, a supernatural place and then it goes into a truly horrifying place. And so I think the fact that you are made vulnerable by those transitions leads yeah. it to being like such a successful horror film. There's a lot of dualities in the film. There's a lot of sort of repeated motifs <laughs> that I think work really to its advantage. The film starts with a funeral um, for for Annie's mother, that she's not sad about at all. So it's a funeral, it's somebody dying that you see not you see people not really being sad about. And then you know, uh, a quarter of the way through, you have you have the character Charlie gets gets killed in an in accident, such a horrifying and sad in a horrific way. way. And then you have you have another funeral, but this funeral ha- is is it's heartrending. I mean, it's just. It, it's really funny because we were talking about uh, the Han Solo movie, which I, I quite enjoyed, but how it doesn't really take death seriously, doesn't really treat it. Yeah, it's just people of... die, and like like Woody Harrelson buries Sandy Newton, and he's like, he's like, man, okay, yeah, on to the next exactly. thing. This is a film that really takes death pretty seriously. You know, it takes grief seriously. <laughs> it and, certainly and does. You don't usually see that in horror films, and and family dynamic too. I mean, yeah, you get a very strong sense of the relationships between the people in this family. And it's a messed up family dynamic. Oh, I mean, totally. You know, uh, so in, in the film, the, the son, Alex Wolf, uh, is the actor. Peter. Peter. He's the one kind of He's responsible for uh, Charlie's death accidentally. Charlie goes to a party with Peter. She eats a, 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 cake. a cake with peanuts in it and she's allergic to nuts Sorry. and she starts to have an allergic reaction. And uh, Peter tries to rush her to the hospital and through a series of events, Charlie oh. ends up sticking her head out the car window, to gasping try and for it, air. Yeah. As Peter, uh, who's going seventy or something, he he like you know skids off the road. He sees well, you know, he sees like a dead deer laying in the middle of the road, yeah. I think, and he swerves to avoid it. And Thus, Charlie's head gets hit by by a telephone pole, pole and knocked off. 
you know, and you get this great scene like where he's just sort of looking back at the crumpled mass of what his sister is. And he's just like, he looks just, you know, shattered. And then he just goes home. Yeah. And he just like quietly, like it's, it's not what you would think would happen, but it is very appropriate. And it's, it's thought out in a way that you don't see in these sort of movies very often. It's just such an incredibly orchestrated thing because you feel like, you, you know, the fact that Peter is trying desperately to save the life of his sister and ends up decapitating her accidentally. It's, I mean, it's just like... It's horrific. You, how can you not feel awful for this kid? And then you hear uh, you hear Tony Collette's character find it just while the camera stays on a, like a, a Peter that's just laying in his bed. Still Comatose, awake, pretty. Kind of like, you know... Yeah, stunned and in, in shock. Stunned in shock. Um, and then you hear, you hear Tony Collette go out to the car and find the body yeah which oh i have a question for you yeah um did you know like when you were watching what we just described you don't really know that he's decapitated his sister do you no you don't know that like you you, do know that she's dead but oh my god so then yeah it flashes to To after all of that if you're you kind of like this is the first moment that it really looks like a horror film because you get this shot and it, I mean, it's beautifully composed, and and this sculpture of Charlie's decapitated head, covered in ants, yeah, on the side of the road, and just like there's you know mangled flesh, and and she, well, we can talk about how she looks later, but it's just, I mean, it's it's grotesque, and it really stays on that for like a good few seconds, like you really get. I think it this. feels longer than it actually probably, is, but. yeah. <laughs> But that's like, because you don't know, like you, I didn't know that her head came off. No, no. I think I expected that she just got blunt force trauma, like killed. But the fact that you then see that her head is laying there, like, oh my God. It's a a great moment. Yeah. It's it's, It's it's, a surprise. It's a surprise. And it's exactly like a director in control of the medium showing you exactly what it wants to show you. Exactly. Right. At the right time. Yeah. Because you're, because this is the thing. You're sitting there feeling the grief. I mean, or or the the initial shock yeah. and horror that Tony Collette is feeling at finding her her daughter's dead body, mm-hmm. and then and then he's just like whammo, he hits you with this shot of the head, yeah, and it's like oh, I mean, it, like I said, it really it gets under your skin, and you get some really great then like uh, angry conversations between between Tony Collette and her son um, around the dinner table, some some like. Horrific things, like emotionally horrific things, you know, yeah. like inside I was just like, oh my God, send this poor boy away. Don't you have any relatives <laughs> to send know. him to? He shouldn't be living with you after these, this horrific thing happened. And and it's just, you know, you don't find movies that really sort of expose you to such deep emotion no. that often. And this one really does it, really does it successfully. Um, I want to talk about a couple yeah. of the other uh, production aspects here too. The sound design. I can say it for this film. Sound is mixing. Stunning. I think I think this is where like you know how when you're watching the Academy Awards. Yeah. And they have like the award for sound mixing. Yeah. And you're like, who would ever really who, would ever who thinks is that about yeah. that? But you really like you notice it in this. So, which is another reason why you should see it in the theater. So the score is by this guy named Colin uh, Stetson, who um he's a, a Canadian <laughs> saxophone player. He actually plays on some of the arcade fires stuff. Uh, but he he does his own sort of like fake jazz records that get pretty good reviews. I never really enjoyed him all that much, but he's uh, well suited to making the kind of creepy string laden, you know, horror movie soundtrack, atonal sort of stuff that that he does here. Perfectly suited to him. Great great score. 
But more importantly, the way that they mix some of these things uh, takes advantage of the stereo field in, in, in a multiplex in a way that I, there are very few movies where I've, where I've really noticed it. You know, it's a trick, but it's such a great trick. So what happens is, you know, they're mixing most everything to come out of the front of the house like you're just watching a regular movie. But because they have speakers all around, they mix some of the spooky things that happen. Like, like you know, there's, there's, there's intimations that the house, the, the home of Annie is haunted by first her, her mother and then also her daughter, Charlie. And her daughter, Charlie, has a tick where she goes, she does that like palatial that. knock. You know, um, and so this will ha- this happens occasionally, and the characters hear it in the world of the movie. But the way it's mixed, it sounds like that part is in in the theater next to you. It really sounds like it's right in your. It sounds ear. like it's right next to you, mm-hmm. wh- where everything else sounds like it's coming from the screen, like in the world of the movie. It sends chills up you. It yeah. is it is such an effective use of sound mixing. I mean, I tell you what, if you see this movie in a theater where that has a has a pretty good stereo. It is, it's, it's a great effect. Yeah. It's amazing. And then, you know, I know you wanted to talk about the miniatures because Annie, the character Annie is an artist in this and she has some pretty interesting artwork. Yeah. So Annie makes these, um, miniature like dioramas of rooms sometimes, um, with people. I don't know if they're all intended to be with people in them, but they're almost like small dollhouse scenes. Um, Yeah. Sorry, my throat's a bit dry. Anyways, but um, but yeah, so these uh, well, actually, though, the movie starts by zooming in on this house and zooming in through a window and showing you her studio and then zooming in on this one that looks very much like an entire dollhouse. And then it it actually there's like you know a little super awesome tricky thing that they do where they zoom in even further and the movie starts with um, Peter in bed, right? Yeah, yeah. So it zooms in. On a real character inside the dollhouse, kind of, and Gabriel Byrne enters the room. Um, so it gives you this kind of distancing, Brechtian distancing effect, sort of like making it like these characters are dolls. I think, once again, showing that the, the director is in control of the story is sort of having these characters do what he wants the, you, you to have, you see them doing, basically. Yeah, so anyways, um, yeah, so these miniatures are part of the storytelling and they're part of, you know, Annie's character's work. Um, you see her working on these like throughout the entire movie. I mean, it's, she creates like a prolific amount of work during the course of this movie. And, um, all these miniatures are, I mean, like they're, they're so incredibly detailed and they sometimes are kind of haunting, like just the, the settings for them and whatnot. Um, at one point she actually, I mean, you can't, you don't even know, like, to be horrified or to laugh, but um, her husband, Steve, Steve comes into her studio and he sees that she's working on a new one. And it's actually the scene where her son decapitates her daughter. Yeah. With the car, the car accident, which just the- and and I mean, there's even like like the little tiny version of Charlie's head laying there, right? She's like painting blood on it. That. Detail alone just says so much about the family dynamics at work and sort of the messed up family situation here. Yeah, um, you know, it's well, the fact volumes. that Tony Collette is like, she's sort of unhinged. I mean, you yeah. do get the impression. I think when you're watching this, you don't know exactly whether she she's nuts or not. You kind of there's things that she reveals throughout the movie that make you wonder, like, is this woman actually insane? 
She could be. Mm-hmm. Uh, it turns out it's just having a witch as a mother that really will do that to you. Um, anyways, but yeah, these miniatures are like I I I there's I, I think another movie that comes to mind that has such a love for an art form, kind of an unusual art form that it features really heavily, is actually being John Malkovich with all the puppets. Uh, do you remember yeah. that the, yeah. the the puppets the they give so much of that movie over to just the art form of the puppetry and and you know whatever it's kind of silly and stuff in it well, but um i'll oh. say also the glass works uh from dale shahuli that are in trouble in mind i think also come to mind i don't remember those you don't remember that like that the last third of that movie is all like shahuli glass basically. oh wait at the place where divine is yeah yeah, yeah okay yeah. yeah i i do kind of remember i divine's a bit distracting but you know <laughs> anyhow um yeah, these miniatures are incredible. Yeah, they're made by a guy named Steve Newburn, who actually uh, he built the miniatures for Team America World Police, the bad South Park guys movie um, from a number of years back. Uh, but these are artful in a way that those things weren't, I don't think. And and they just work so well as sort of a metaphor for 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 storytelling in general, for this their commentary on the story that you're seeing. In a lot of ways, they inform the experience. They also explain things that you don't necessarily get from the dialogue in the film. Like when when Annie is describing to Charlie about how um, how when Annie's mother was sort of insisting on raising Charlie, yeah, uh, she says something about how she wanted to feed her. And then I think just after that, they show you a miniature of um, Annie's bedroom. And Annie is in bed holding a baby Charlie and has like a breast out to breastfeed and then a, a figure that looks kind like of ghoulish figure yeah of kind of mother. a creepy little um miniature of i think it's supposed to be annie's mother is standing there with her breast out too like yeah and 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 so when you because when you hear the dialogue you don't real you don't really think oh breastfeed you know what i mean like so there's a really interesting informing of the the story that that is like you just take in these miniatures and they kind of give you more of a sense of like what's going on they flesh out like what annie's feeling about things they flesh out like maybe details that are true or maybe mm-hmm. details that are how she imagines things um but it it's like an incredibly i actually my deepest desire is that these miniatures go on tour in museums because I would love to see them. Like it, it's unusual that you have the experience watching a movie and there's like art being made in the film. Yeah. And you feel like, Oh, I got to see that in person. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's yeah. really, it was, it was actually a pretty amazing treat to have all that there. I mean, yeah. and it's not just like one, you know, like I think there's gotta be dozens of these miniatures yeah. that you see. Um, there's a lot. I love the scene where she gets to smash one. Do you think she felt bad about that? I'll bet she felt bad about doing that. It was probably kind of a throwaway one. Well, but did I mean... you hear too that uh, I mean, we read a little essay that the director wrote about uh, his whole production, basically. And this is a movie with a relatively low budget, a $10 million budget. $10 million. Um, And he was talking about how they actually, they, they had to film all the stuff with the miniatures in the last 10 days of the shoot. They didn't get the miniatures until the last 10 days. Isn't that crazy? That's, so like that's everything nuts. with the miniatures, which is a good portion of the film. Yeah. Oh, you see them consistently throughout. Yeah. So they did everything else before they did those parts. I mean, I could see why, because I obviously they took a long time to make. 
Yeah. They are, you know, they're real artwork. Yeah, yeah. I think it's also really cool. Um, What's the guy's name? Steve Newburn? Steve Newburn, yeah. Steve, he's a Steve, too. Look at that. Oh. Anyway, Steve Newburn, um, I think you also said from that article, he also made some prosthetics for the the makeup effects for this yeah, movie. Yeah, yeah. I I wish I had that guy's job. (laughs) (laughs) He's got he's got like the best job I can imagine. Like he makes prosthetics and And he makes miniatures. Like who? Oh, that's just a dream come true. (laughs) But yeah, the (coughs) miniatures are really cool because, like I said, they help tell you what's going on in the story. There's another thing that they do storytelling wise, that I think is really important, and some people might not pick up on this because. It happens during the classes in high school that Peter's sitting in. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you might be a little more inclined to kind of zone out on what's being taught in the class. But those lessons are actually really informative to what you are experiencing, like what like what you can interpret later on about the storytelling um, yeah. of this entire movie. So you know what I'm talking about, well, right? Well, the first lesson that they talk about, it's, I mean, obviously some sort of English class, and they're talking about Hercules... Uh, the one play about Hercules, I can't remember exactly which one it is now, but they 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 get into a discussion about fate and whether or not it's more tragic if you know fate implies that you didn't have a choice or if you did have a choice, basically. Yeah. So if if a tragic flaw is more tragic if it's something you're not choosing, like if like you, if you, you have had no, no control, will, no control over, it. over your destiny, is well, it is it more or less tragic? What that, it, that, what that ends up inspiring? You just inspiring. made a bad choice, basically. Yeah, yeah. So. It, and that, that informs the whole movie. That informs a lot because then, of course, you know... Because a, a girl in the class says it's more tragic if you have no control, basically. Mm-hmm. And the whole rest of the movie is really showing Annie as a person who thinks she might have some sort of control, but she really has none. She tries desperately when she finally figures out that there's, like, possession happening and, and like, a haunting of her house. Yeah. And, you know, that there's, like all of this action leading towards the the imminent demise of her entire family, mm-hmm. um, she she definitely sort of scrambles towards the end to try and figure out what to do and then to do it only to have it completely backfire. Yeah, yeah. And she has... There's a great reversal of, of the no normal effect. rules of horror films um, where there's this book that uh, for some reason Annie thinks that if she burns it, it will like, it'll, it'll free... The, the hunting happening basically it'll end the hunting which she happening. thinks at that point i think it's the the notebook that the um spirit of charlie is drawing in with. yeah so doing all her little her sketches so she thinks that if she burns that it'll actually like you know it'll stop whatever's happening but she also thinks Why it's gonna thinks burn that, her up who knows you know what i mean it's one of those things where like this is hey, a, we're used to sense. horror movies where people come up with weird ideas and they and they you know of course they like somehow have some sort of supernatural logic that makes sense and they have a thing that they must mm-hmm. accomplish. And so this movie gives you the thing that she's trying to accomplish. And then it goes through where it fakes you out and you think she's not going to be able to accomplish it. And then she does in the end. And then it has the exact opposite intended effect. Yeah. Which is kind of horrific. I mean, it's, it's, a, that's horror too. That's, yeah. That's a, Cause again, it's, reversal. yeah, I think, I think the thing that is presented a lot in this movie, I'll just say, and I don't think I've said it yet is that, um, a lot of times you, the viewer, when you go see a horror film, you, you know, you know, oh, hey, it's um, it's a vampire movie. So obviously this guy who's a little bit scared of, of being in the sunlight, he's obviously a vampire. Yeah. And so what we know is that what you can kill a vampire by cutting off their head or driving a stake through their heart or just like getting them out into the sunlight. Like you kind of know the answer to all the problems. Like you know what to expect. But this movie 
has no, like you have no idea what's going on most of the time. And then when you kind of think you have a little bit of, of grasp on that, you don't know what the answer is. Because there is none. There is none. I know, exactly. So yeah. getting back to this, um, this sense of, you know, it's tragic because these characters have no control. I mean, like when after Charlie dies, um, you know, Annie and Steve and Peter are left in this kind of like, they're left in this limbo where they're dealing with their grief, but then they also start to have supernatural things happen. And, um, and then it ends up that like they're all doomed, but you kind of, you don't even know like which one of them is the most in danger. And it turns out it's Peter. I mean, it, <laughs> but it's really all of them. Yeah. Yeah. I think truly it's all of them, but, yeah, but, but you, but it's Peter sort of the, the, the finger, the finger kind of points around and you don't know. And actually I think it's funny that like Steve, I thought was pretty safe the whole time. And it turns out like, no, no, he, he's not. No. I mean, anyways, um, I think the other lesson that was being taught in one of Peter's classes was that, um, oh, I can't remember exactly what it was, but I know that the teacher was talking about like, uh, so and so was given all these signs pointing towards like the the thing that they were con uh, afflicted with or the thing that you know was their um, their fate or whatever, but they didn't see the signs until it was too late. Hmm. And so I, I think also that really, when you, when you think back on that, um, <clears throat> you see that like, I, this is really like a movie where reflection pays off because going through the movie, you have no idea what's going on. And then after you've seen it, you probably are going to spend like a day being like, wait, like still putting the pieces together. And you're like, what happened? You know, like how did all of this, end up with, uh, you know, most of a family dead and, like, Peter then in inheriting this, like, demon <laughs> spirit into his body at the end in this weird, weird worship situation. Anyways, um, but, yeah, so I think throughout the movie, like, after you have a moment after all that tragedy to stop and think about it, you're sort of given, like, these clues along the way, like the book on spiritualism mm -hmm. that Tony Collette doesn't really look at until... Yeah way later on like she looks at it and she just tosses it dude if i don't know like you think to yourself like if if my deceased parent who i knew had secret friends and kind of a secret life left behind this book on spirituality i would probably take a look at and it had a note to me specifically yeah yeah but i think the thing she is want to deal with it's so time, believable yeah. that she wouldn't because she's overwhelmed with just she doesn't really want to process. She had a very difficult relationship with her, her mom. She doesn't like her mom. And so you get this really great scene in the beginning of the funeral where she's like giving a eulogy for her mom and you can tell she does not like her mom. Oh, yeah. I mean, she's got like not a tear to shed. Yeah, so that's it's, it's a fascinating emotional journey. Yeah. Oh, can I actually get back to... Sorry. Just no, before I leave... I Before I leave the thread of like the, the, the lessons going on in this class and forming stuff. Yeah. Like I said, I think in a way... That's like one of those little nuggets that like it's sort of there like whispering to you like, hey, this is maybe like we're going to kind of give you a little bit of a, a handle on how to process this film after or, you know, during or whatever. But it reminded me a lot um, of It Follows, how I think a, a, a big key in understanding that film is actually the um the segments throughout that are read by that one character that one gal with the glasses the dostoevsky bits yeah she reads the bits idiot. of dostoevsky yeah. and i think again i think a lot of viewers 
kind of zone certain things out. Yeah. Like if it's not big and flashy and exciting or if someone's not like making out in front of you or something, like you're not going to pay attention. Like, you know what I mean? I think a lot of people tend to zone out when something's being read or dictated on film. Yeah. And I think that it's really important in this movie to like, to remember, oh yeah, what is Nothing it? Nothing you're being shown is an accident in this film. No, certainly not. Um, I, so so, anyways, near perfect film. Yes. I'll say that. Uh, I will say that I I do find the critical reception to this film interesting. This film is a very polarizing film. There are people like me who love this film. Yeah. Uh, and then there are a lot of people who hate this film. Do you think that there are people that just don't really understand it? Because like I said, you go through this and you feel muddled and, and you yes feel and no. like you don't know what's going on. I have read some of the IMDb reviews on the, on this, some of the user reviews. Now, a lot of people are saying it's boring. Those people are just, they're not watching it. So, so you know, they have no idea what they've seen. If you think this movie's boring, you should, you know, learn how to watch film because this movie's not boring in the least. Uh but there are other people. Tony Scott, for the the reviewer for the, the New York Times, uh, wrote an essay about how he was disappointed in the ending of the film because he felt like it was kind of a cop out to make it a the devil made them do it sort of film to have like the devil be behind it, be be the big bad person behind the stuff. What does he want though? I well, would say the devil's a pretty great. Um... I actually also think he misunderstands the ending of the film. I think I you know I think he he doesn't really get it. I think that he's misunderstanding number one. It is not about the devil. What they're trying to conjure up in this film is a devil. Yeah, it's a demon. It's a lower demon, basically, who's uh, who who inhabits Charlie in the beginning of the film and then at the end of the film inhabits Peter. Now, interestingly in the film, I don't think that that demon is coded as evil in any way. No. Charlie, is, is, when, when she's a real human character, is a weird character, mm -hmm. but she's not a malevolent character. It's the human beings in the movie that are malevolent. The the people that are part of the the, the coven uh, who are malevolent. And the demon itself is kind of neutral and weird, you know. And and interestingly enough, people are unhappy about the there's like a, a little monologue at the end or it's a you know, from from the character uh Joan. Joan to a Peter who is also Charlie, basically explaining, you know, what has happened to Charlie, basically, who's now found herself in her brother's body. And uh, people think it's on the nose or whatever, but I think it actually does an interesting thing by sort of making you treat this, this you know, hor horrific character kind of as a newborn infant. It actually humanizes the, the, the Charlie in a way that is really interesting, I think. Um, and it does explain sort of what's going on, but it, but it does it in sort of a sideways way. And it makes it seem, like I said, that the horrific people here are actually the human beings, not yeah. the supernatural stuff going on. Uh, I have a friend who, though, who, who has convinced me that there is one possible flaw in this film. And I will, I will tell you what it is now. So throughout the film, there are strange symbols written, written around. There's people sort of lurking in the background, uh, turns out that they're like witchcrafty people, right? You know, so like you see them at the funeral, you see them then like outside of the school at different points, you see them, you know, doing some weird stuff. Mm -hmm. And it turns out there are people that are in in this this coven and they're trying to, you know, resurrect this demon, set it free in, in you know, one of the children's bodies. Now, um, I think the movie works so well if the accident that kills Charlie 
is truly an accident. Yeah. If if at one at the beginning of the film, the the coven is trying to sort of like uh, embody Charlie more so, basically make Charlie sort of you know own her basically as 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 a demon, and then they have to switch their their uh, strategy because Charlie gets killed accidentally right like like when charlie gets killed they're like oh let's regroup and figure out how we're going to get this demon back on earth again for and us. we're going to do that by putting it in, into the sun peter. peter now that to me is a perfect movie okay so so there is there is there is a shot right before the uh when they're going to the party <laughs> when when peter's driving charlie to the party of the telephone pole that he later hits right and it shows some sort of weird symbol written on that particular telephone pole now the implication there could be that the the coven has somehow arranged for the decapitation to happen. If that is the case, if that's what the director intended, that doesn't make any goddamn sense. <laughs> and it actually makes the movie a lot worse. Oh. I, I will say so You don't like the coven interfering that much. No, no. I think the movie really only really, really works if the accident itself is truly an accident. Yeah. You know, I, I think so. I think too. that that makes all the emotional stuff work. I think that makes everything about the uh, the, the gathering horror of the film work so much better. But like, if if you the viewer don't catch on to that until maybe like after you've seen the movie, mm-hmm. it still works. You uh, still go through those emotions. You do, but 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 it, it turns the coven into this like wily coyote sort of like oh I know right place right time sort of like pulling strings the entire time put a dead deer in the road right by this phone pole yeah i don't like that at all we know that charlie's gonna stick her head out the window yeah i know i know it doesn't if for some reason you know mr mr ari uh astor is listening listening to this podcast (laughs) for your dvd and blue Blu ray release i would recommend just remove just removing that two second shot just remove that shot we don't need to know that remove that one shot don't need to have if you remove that shot i think your movie is perfect Mm. Hey, I got a question. Sure. Um, so do you think that the casting of what's her name? Millie, um, the, the girl that plays Charlie. Uh, Millie Shapiro is her name. She's a, yeah. a young actress who's was on Broadway as Matilda before this. Yeah, so she looks really odd in this movie. She has a very strangely shaped face. Yeah. Um and Looking at like her IMDb page, she looks way more normal, and I don't know if they did makeup to her, or if they really just cast somebody whose face they could. Well, the proportions have to be there. I would. The think. proportions are there. She has. She just has very odd proportions, right? Yeah. I mean, I mean, it's it's tough to talk about people's appearances in, in I know. the world today. I want to be very especially about a child. Well, and I want to um, be sensitive to her because it's not like she's deformed, you know. Yeah, she, but she doesn't look typical. Yeah, and I'm not just saying typical for movies. I mean, it's not like if you saw her out in public, you'd be like, "Oh my god," you know. But well, she's not like the. You ele- wouldn't be like that about anybody. <laughs> well, anywhere. I mean, the ele- <laughs> if you saw the Elephant Man, you'd be like, "Oh my god," right? But but I mean, like she's she's not like she's not like a mutant, is what I'm saying. But she is a vi- she has a very distinctly odd look in this. Yeah, and I will say that. Uh, gosh, I say that all the time. I will say that. Um, mm-hmm. She, I like that they cast her for this. I think that she was perfect looking for this role because mm-hmm. she looks. There's just something a little bit off about how she looks. 
It's just the proportions and maybe how they did her hair and and everything with it. Yeah, there's like not very much makeup. She's got a, a little bit of a scar on her face. Um, that they, they kind of play up, I think, yeah. if they didn't put on it on. But do so. you think that generally how she's received is as like looking deformed? I mean, do you yeah. think that the general public who sees this I, I think and that, is not sensitive is like, oh, look at that deformed girl. Yeah. I mean, I, I think that there is a bit of an ethical question that you could make about yeah. about casting that, that actress and, and having her uh, play the way she played. I mean, yeah. she's not... There's no sort of like she's not. It's not like this is a Down syndrome kid or anything right. like that in the film at all. Yeah, no, she doesn't have. She might have some developmental she's, sort of she's, setbacks. She's definitely her character is very strange in the movie. You know, yeah, it's supposed she to be has kind of well, and they also and treat the movie her explanation kind of like she's a little is autistic. That, maybe? Is that she's like inhabited by this demon, and the demon prefers to be in in a boy's body, right? And so it's an imperfect fit. Yeah, so of. it's kind of like. It, it's it's inhabiting her it's body. Kinda and like it's kind of the like Edgar suit. In it's kind Men of in like black. curdling her. Yeah, yeah. Her exactly. physically and also her mentally to the point where. So I mean, I can see where there's an open question, but but I think that that stuff is sort of above and beyond the uh, the questions of art and storytelling. Well, it's kind of like similar to when when Todd Hay, uh, wait, Todd, Todd who's who's the guy that made Freaks. Oh, um... Todd, whatever his name is, who made Freaks. Yeah. I want to say Todd Haynes, but that is not Todd No, Haynes. it's not Todd Haynes. Anyways, you know, back then, they, they he cast actual people who, who made a living at a well, freak Well, there's shows. other movies with freaks in them, too, and you kind of can't get away with that anymore. Yeah, yeah. Even if... Well, the last one I can think of um, is Sentry, I think. It's from, like, their... The '80s. Jeff Goldblum is in, in very, very yeah, 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 yeah. That's a and they uh, have like a winter. They film. have like gates of hell open, and then they have all these freaks coming out of it, and it's like they're really people who are deformed. Yeah. Um, I can say mutants because they literally are mutants. Yeah. Um, but and I'm sure. I mean, you know, if I if I had a deformity and someone wanted to put me in a movie and I thought the movie was pretty cool, I could I could see well, an argument where you think that's all right, but yeah. But anyways, the, oh, Todd Browning. Todd Browning, that's the director's yeah, name. Yeah, sorry, yes. Todd Browning Todd made Browning's Freaks. Freaks. Anyways, yeah, that's that's thought of as really unethical now. And I don't think that... But people that, still watch Freaks, though. And oh, I they certainly it's still, do. it's still a pretty cool movie. Well, because it, it's... you. Yeah, I mean, you people are always going to be curious about people who look different than them, and it's, just, you know, whatever. I mean, yeah. the, the point is, like, I feel like um, I, I was very kind of wary of this girl's... Um, possible fame from this but actually it sounds like she she really really it. wanted to be in this yeah. movie oh didn't you tell me also that she actually when she went to open auditions she she thought she didn't get it because all the other girls that were there were redheads and she's yeah, like i guess yeah. they want a redhead which i think is really <laughs> funny that but like she really wanted the role apparently and she really likes horror <laughs> films the, the young actress and she does a good great job i mean you know for she an really actress does. i haven't seen she's called on to do a number of things and she does them all well mm -hmm. um you know, and that thing I think is is it's it's a uh, it's really effective. It's a really effective motif. Yeah, it's really kind of weird and creepy, and, and it's, it's maybe one of the the better so um, simple auditory motifs in a horror film since the grudges. Yeah, uh, <laughs> it's up there with that. Totally. Yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, so, anyways, Hereditary, great film. Now let's talk about something that isn't so great. We went and saw last night. Was well, it this night or was it the night? No, no, the it night was before. Tuesday night. Tuesday night. We went and saw on Tuesday night Jurassic Park World. Jurassic Fallen World Kingdom. 
the new Jurassic Park movie, the fifth Jurassic Park movie, the sequel to Jurassic World, which came out a couple of years ago and made a boatload of money. I don't know how that made that much money. That's insane. It had been like 10 years since the last People dinosaur just wanted movie, to see dinosaurs. And people were like, hey, it's not a superhero movie. What is it like? Nobody else is making dinosaur movies? Nobody else is making Spielbergian adventures. Mm, I, see. I see. That's definitely true. Yeah. And people have, there's a nostalgia for the 90s out there right now. And, and I think that movie played. But I will say that I think that that Jurassic World movie from a couple of years ago is one of the worst su- su- successful movies I've ever seen. It's, <laughs> it's a bad movie. Hmm. It's, it's not, even, not even a question. It's a bad movie. It's got Just some bad. good actors in it, and they're given like the worst things to do. Uh, that movie makes Chris Pratt unlikable. Yeah, and I don't know why you would want to do that. I mean, he's, it, it he's totally wastes fundamentally like one of the most likable actors out there right now. It totally wastes that weirdo that I love from uh, Law and Order. What's that guy's name? I don't. I'm looking at you with a blank. I don't know who the the guy from Law and Order, the the big guy. <sighs> Vince, no. Yeah, Vince D'Onofrio. Oh, okay. Remember, it wastes him entirely. It, yeah. It, yeah, I mean, I forgot he was in it. The whole internet has talked about how ridiculous it is that ridiculous it is that Bryce Dallas Howard tries to run in heels throughout the film. Um, it it ruins everything about Jurassic Park by making up dinosaurs. It's it's really it's a horrifically bad movie. So this bad. movie, uh, from the previews. Now I had to go see it anyway because I will say Nick likes his dinosaurs. I love dinosaurs. I, you know, I love dinosaurs so much that when I was a child. When people ask me what I wanted to be when I grew up, I said Godzilla because that was the closest thing to a dinosaur. I was going to say, is Godzilla technically a dinosaur? Well, I mean, why not? Sort of. It's like a nuclear dinosaur. Okay. Close enough. Exactly. So uh, I wanted to be a paleontologist. I knew all the names of dinosaurs when I was a seven-year-old. Yeah. You know? There's a lot of kids out there that are still like that, though. And actually, that's why they made this movie. And that's why, yeah. It became abundantly clear to me that this was a kid's movie. (laughs) Not just because there were a lot of kids there, but because the kids loved it. They were it. eating it up. They so, ate up every little bit of it. Oh, my God. The one kid in front of us stood up and clapped at the end of did it. Did he really? I didn't even notice How that. How did you not notice that? I was busy worrying about you because you were like coughing. I was coughing movie. up a lung. I felt bad. Yeah. Uh, but, but not that bad. So, so It's so not like I the, covered any dialogue with coughing that was worthwhile. From the trailers of this film, I thought it looked like the worst thing ever. Yeah, I was hoping it was going to be a monumental fiasco. I was kind of thinking that they were going to go like full-on Velociraptor soldiers. Yeah. I kind of was suspicious that that's what they were doing. And there's some hints of that, but they don't quite get there. And actually, uh, this film is directed by uh, J.A. Bayona instead of that Colin Trevorrow guy that directed the last one. Who That guy is a bad filmmaker. He got fired from Star Wars before even making a Star Wars movie. Why would they even have like asked him to do it in the because first Because the place? Jurassic Park movie made so much money. Oh, but that's not a good but reason. But it's not that, a good oh. movie. Anyways, so Jay Bayona, though, is this uh, Spanish guy who made the movie called The Orphanage um, that was produced by Guillermo del Toro. That was a good movie. Which which is a, a soulful, pretty good, in the vein of uh, 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 Turn of the Screw sort of horror film. Yeah. I mean, it's not really a horror film. It's more of just a gothic story, I would, I would say. But it, it gets you. Yeah. It's worth and, a watch. And well made. Well made. Mm-hmm. This movie, <clears throat> he was fighting a losing battle. Colin Trevorrow co-wrote the screenplay. And you could tell, like, this screenplay is garbage. Oh, yeah. And this guy tries to color in the margins with sort of soulful things. There's some some really interesting shots where, like, one of the imaginary made-up dinosaurs, uh, like, you know, 
first of all, it's, most of the movie is set in some sort of bizarre castle in California. That has like the Natural History Museum in inside, it, inside it. of it. Which is which is almost so weird that I kind of like it. It's I mean, got, I guess if I had a really gigantic house, I would also have a room like that looks like that. It's got like a company of wolves feel to it in parts. You know what I mean? So it's mm. so weird that it's almost kind of like, okay, you know, why not set it in a giant weird castle? Yeah. Rich person's castle. But but anyway, so so at one point, this this uh, scary fake dinosaur is trying to hunt down a little clone girl, and she's hiding in her bedroom, and the dinosaur like sneakily comes in the window like it's a vampire or mm-hmm. something. And there's no reason for that scene to be in the film. It's just poetic. Yeah, there's and like weird. shots of its shadow on her wall, exactly, and it's and it builds up yeah. all this stuff. In this really interesting way that's really just a guy like being like, you know what? I'm going to try to put something kind of resonant in this film that doesn't right. deserve it. Mm-hmm. And there are a number of times he does that. The The, the opening scene, which takes place in, on uh, the Dino- Jurassic Park island, which they blow up halfway it, it, through the Isla film. Isla Nub- Nubla, right? N- Nublar, I think. Nublar. Isla Nublar. Um, <laughs> it's a great little piece of like almost like slapstick dinosaur choreography where oh, you in the see very the, beginning yeah, you, oh my you god you see these like these like you know working schmoes uh pirating some dinosaur dna stuff and then they eventually get eaten some of them anyway oh my gosh the shot where the the little like underwater vessel yeah yeah is, like sitting there being like okay now we're gonna go back up to the surface and you see behind them the the shadow of a gigantic i don't know what dinosaur Fish monster thing yeah I mean, and then and then real. and then you see like a light flashes and then you see its mouth like open like ready to eat it's just so funny and again i i mean the, i enjoyed that part but the kids around us were loving it yeah but, it, but like that, like saturday morning cartoons that that little bit is better than anything in the last jurassic park movie and there are little things like that around there but like then there are other stuff like every single time they they sort of do a shot from the first film as in they like mimic a shot from the jurassic park oh that like we know when the little girl is in the dumb waiter trying to close the yeah, door and it's exactly like it's exactly the, yeah. when uh oh my god i hate those so much yeah like, they're like, like they're just like it's not even you, an homage it's just literally they're doing exactly they're just, the they're same just, like, thing poking you being like do you remember jurassic park yeah do you remember jurassic park it was a pretty good movie i know and it's, it's shameless so cheap. and yeah. cheap and uh awful but again this is a movie for children and uh i think those children they, I think they those children love it they don't yeah. mind that it's cheap and and it rips off movies playing pretty movies. well i mean it got mediocre reviews it actually got worse reviews than jurassic world which i don't think it quite deserves Mm-hmm. Because, like I said, I think this you see like some people trying to make a good movie out of something that's impossible to salvage. <sighs> um, where Jurassic World was just sort of a, a shit show, you know, front to back. There was nobody. How do you think Michael Crichton would feel about this new one? Michael Crichton really fell a long way before the end there. I know he did, but, so, but like if, you know, I, I mean, like to, to, to think like. Timeline, do you to think? Think do you think, I mean, he's, he How was such he, a prolific writer. Do you think he was like, okay, here's my, my, one of my babies. And then like to see it turned into something that's so, it's probably going to get turned into way worse stuff before we die though. In the Jurassic Park <clears throat> TV show? You mean? I think it's, totally, yeah, totally. I think it's going to just gonna keep going and going and going. What I think is jarring though, as someone who grew up with the original movie, um, is seeing the Velociraptors turned into like 
the hero of the film. Yeah, it's it's, jarring it is disturbing. I will agree. In this, because they're so scary in the first film, and to see them as like you know, like you're supposed to like root for them in these ones, and you're supposed to think they're like a dog, basically. It's very strange. Mm-hmm. It's like it's like if you were in the 1980s and watching the slow devolution of, uh, you know, Freddy from the Nightmare on Elm Street movies into an insult comic. Yeah, or like the Mr. Rogers character or something like that. It's yeah, you know, it it would, it just doesn't. I don't know. It, I don't even know what to say about this movie because it seems so not worth saying anything about. Well, it. It, it's got all the things that you see in blockbusters today: a a giant lack of uh, romance or sex. Uh, uh, you know, uh, people just saying catchphrases rather than actually having conversations. Mm-hmm. A script that makes no sense whatsoever. Um, a tiny bit of visual flair to try to paper over everything lacking in it. Yeah. But I'd rather and see it than a superhero movie. So there's would that. Would you? I'd rather just have two hours to like go and hang well, out we did outside. Finally watch, we did finally watch the Black Panther, right? And I would say that oh, I prefer Jurassic World to the Black Panther. I think it was a better made film. I don't know. Maybe uh, it's a tough call it's a for tough me. It's a call, right? It's Sophie's choice. But I will say, oh, God, there I go again. I say that way too much. I'm sorry. I'm going to ban myself from saying that next time. Um, If you have kids, especially between the ages of, what, like 6 and 12? And they like dinosaurs. Okay, all kids like dinosaurs pretty much. Wow. Then, then go take them to see this. I just, I think it's really funny though because I remember when I was, I was a, a child when Jurassic Park came out, and yeah. I saw that in the theater. And I mean, I say I saw it, but really, most of that movie I spent with my eyes shut and my fingers and my ears because it was so scary. And I don't think it's necessarily that kids today don't find certain things like that scary, but. I think that there, I mean, there was n- there was no graphic violence in this one. Well, God, the says, you know, the violence the violence is done in a way that's comic. Yeah, and it's intended to be fun. It's supposed to be enjoyable to watch. Yeah, and and so if you like to see dinosaurs eat people, and other dinosaurs. This, this is, is the movie for you. you. That's what I that's what I say about these new ones. I'm like, <laughs> everybody at work was like, "How'd you like it?" And I'm like, "Well, if, if you want to see dinosaurs eat people and other dinosaurs, go see this movie." Go see this movie. So that's well, they, that's what I have to say. Also, do, children like this. They movie. They did more so. puppets in this movie than they did in the last one, and I like that about it. I, I mean, like there puppets. There were some practical effects and yeah. everything. It's just it is what it is. It's, it's it is. What I it mean, is. I think that Jurassic Park, the original Jurassic, the first. Yeah. Jurassic Park. I think it is such a classic. Yeah. I think it belongs in like a canon along with like Jaws. Yeah. And King and Kong like and Jaws, stuff. And like Jaws, every sequel has been bad. Exactly. You can't improve on it. Even Spielberg's I think it's impossible to improve on it. It was pretty bad. I remember actually The Lost World when I saw that film and I was really looking forward to it more than anything. Oh, I know. Me too. And when I went and saw it, I was like, wow. This is really not good. I know. Even as a kid, you're I was like, like this is, I was like, no. I thought Jeff Goldblum could act. What yeah. happened? And and I haven't seen it recently enough to really have an opinion on that. But I, I do remember being like jarred by how bad I thought yeah. the acting was. And that's an actual Spielberg film. So. Yeah. You know what? Uh, I mean, like Michael Crichton is up there in terms of an author who has had so many film adaptations made yeah, of his work. Yeah. Um, and I will say... Uh, Another piece of kind of crap <laughs> that he kind of... Are you going to talk of, about Congo? No, 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 no. I'm going <laughs> to talk about the one... I can't remember the title of it. The book... I just read it earlier this year. It's a book that... Micro? Micro, yeah. That he wrote 
part of and then somebody else wrote the rest of because he was in the process of writing it when he died yeah or at least he had written part of it and then when he died you know it got turned over to somebody else to to finish up mm-hmm. uh that one i would love to see made into a movie Cause, yeah because it has a lot of jurassic park types of things happen in it like these people get shrunk down and so they're like running around in hawaii and there's like bugs that are like especially ants that are just like killing these people um are any of these people rick moranis they should be. Maybe <laughs> maybe they maybe they could be. Anyways, it like it could be the the next honey I shrunk the kids. <laughs> Anyways, but no, it's it's actually like it's it's a it's a schlocky read. It's really fat, but it is pretty haunting. It's like gross. There's like a lot of like really graphic violence in it. Oh. And um I would I would love to see somebody say, "You know what? We make a lot of movie a lot of money with these Jurassic Park rip-off movies, but what we could be doing is making a new uh, a Crichton. new Michael Crichton franchise. I think they should start with that one because it's it it could be amazing. Well, I want to see more graphic violence. Yeah, I'm sorry, true. True. I can't apologize for that. <laughs> no one's asking you to. That's America uh, for you. All right, so uh, I don't know what we're gonna do next. We'll figure it out when we get there. Maybe we won't be sick next time. Yeah, hopefully not. And uh, thanks for listening. Thank you.